Uh, good morning again. I think it's still uh, before noon, so good morning again. Um, good to be back. Something about the uh, mid-Atlantic region since I went to college here and spent most of my life here. I'm still adjusting to the South. I mean, I love the South. Very friendly people, uh, but I'm, I'm, a mid, I'm a New Yorker, Baltimore, D.C. It's one of those things, so... It's my honor to bring you the word today. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter, 1st chapter. If we could turn there in our scriptures. Where is it? Oh, here it is. The word of the Lord, 1st Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Christ, to those who are elect, exile of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, our God, our King, we thank you for this scripture. We thank you for the, the, the word which is able to, to sanctify and to edify and to conform us uh, into Jesus, I pray that you would help us this morning to comprehend your word, that it would change us, open our eyes to the reality that you create even moment by moment in our lives and help us to see Jesus, the source of our hope, the source of our lives. In Christ's name I pray, amen. When you were born... You were born spiritually dead in a sin-cursed world of pain and suffering. You were born into a world largely without hope. Now, in America, we can deceive ourselves into believing that we can find hope in this world. With enough education, money, power, we can turn this world into a very livable space, some believe. Oh, yeah, you may only have 60, 70, 80, even 90 years. But some believe that you can have your best life now. 
But first century Christians did not entertain such an illusion. The average life expectancy was 40 if you made it past childhood. The infant mortality rate was 50%. Most people had lots of children because they knew that most would die. They were always the threat of plagues and pestilence and disease. They didn't enjoy the miracle drugs that we have in our time. Life was hard. And to make matters even worse, these first century Christians were experiencing persecution. It is to these Christians scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia to whom Peter is writing. And he is writing to encourage them in their time of suffering and difficulty. He writes a letter of hope. In the midst of hardship and difficulty made even harder because of persecution, Peter is writing a letter of hope. He wants them to be encouraged and to model what it means to be a follower of Christ. He tells them in 1 Peter 3.15 that they should revere Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have. In the midst of difficulty, suffering, hardship, and persecution, these Christians were supposed to be so filled with hope that people would actually ask them about the hope that they see in them. I wonder, are you a hope-filled community? Do people wonder when they see your life and they see you that you have a hope that they can't put their finger on? There's a lot of uncomfortable things going on in our world today. It's hard to look at the news or read the news. I've heard some people say, what is the world coming to? Well, the world has fallen, and it's not getting a lot better. And it's easy to lose hope if you, that is where you pin your hope. But we need to ask the question, where is your hope? And so though, today I obviously want to talk about hope. I'm going to do it under three headings. What is hope? What kind of hope does the world have to offer? And what kind of hope does God offer? First of all, what is hope? We talk about hope all the time. We've been hoping ever since we were little kids wanting a certain toy for Christmas. We hope that we are accepted by the other kids in the neighborhood. We hope that things get better in middle school. We hope they get better in high school. We hope there's no traffic tomorrow when we pull out. We hope to pay our bills. We hope the weather doesn't get much worse. Everybody hopes. We run on hope the way a car runs on gasoline. In fact, hopelessness can lead to suicide. Proverbs 13, 12 tells us that hope defers makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a way, is a tree of life. We need hope. We cannot live without hope. Paul Tripp, in his devotionals entitled New Morning Mercies, said, 
we've been hardwired for hope. We project our lives out into the future to imagine what things would be like uh, if we had them. We carry around with us personal hopes and dreams and surrender our hearts to some kind of expectation. We silently wish that things could be different than they are. So much of how we look at life and how we live our lives is connected to the things in which we place our fundamental hope. He goes on to say that hope has three elements, an assessment, an object, and an expectation. We assess reality, we create an object that we think is going to make things better, and then we have an expectation that's going to fulfill us. Anybody remember the Christmas story? Every Christmas we look at the Christmas story, and what's, what's, what's little Ralphie's hope? He wants that BB gun. If I get that, then life will be... He's assessed life. Life is good, but there's something missing. If I get the BB gun, then I'll live happily ever after. And, you know, his parents are trying to talk him out of it because he's going to shoot his eye out. And lo and behold, Christmas comes along, and he's unwrapping all of his gifts, and he's missing that thing that he really wants. And, but it's tucked over in the corner, and he gets it, and he almost shoots his eye out doesn't always give us what we want. We live on hope. Do you know that what you believe about the future largely shapes your experience of the present? Tim Keller, pastor uh, in New York City's uh, church planted, uh, planted Redeemer Church, many of you have probably already uh, heard of him, uses an illustration that's helpful in understanding this concept of your future expectation governing how you live now. He talks about two workers, two factory workers with an arduous, boring job. One is going to get $10,000 at the end of a year. The other one is going to get a million dollars at the end of a year. Guess what the attitude of each one is. The one who's going to get $10,000 at the end of the year finds his job boring, arduous, do I have to come in again? Here we go. The one who's going to get a million dollars comes and whistles every day. I wonder why. Could it be that the expectation of getting a million changes how we live now? We see the same principle at work in the story of Jacob and Rachel. It's Jacob worked seven years to make Rachel his wife. But the Bible tells us that they seem like only a few days because of his love for her. Your attitude towards life in your present circumstance is largely governed by your hope. And unfortunately, people put most of their hope in the things of this world. And the things of this world can offer you a kind of hope, The problem with hoping in things of this world is that they easily disappoint. And that's why when we use the word hope, we just hope it might happen. Because it may not fulfill us. It may not give us what we want. The world was not designed to give us hope. Our hope was always supposed to be in God. And with the world fallen now, 
it's even more hopeless. Our hope is in Him. Romans 8.20 tells us the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. But He subjected it in hope, not of this world, but the hope was in Him. Adam and Eve, created to find their hope in God alone, began to look for hope in all the wrong places. We all have a desire, a longing, a hope for happiness and purpose and meaning and significance, but we tend to look for hope in the wrong places, in situations, in relationships, in possession. But the hope to which God subjected the world, it's not to be found here. And we delude ourselves into thinking that we can find it here. Have you ever noticed how frustrating life can be? You kind of hope for something. This is going to do it. And it doesn't quite measure up, almost regardless of what it is. The Bible warns us against putting our hope in the things of this world. Isaiah asked the question, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy. The psalmist warns, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. We live in a disappointing world. Most of our hopes in this life has already been disappointed. How many of us have been disappointed by family, our friends, our spouses, our government, this is because we've loaded all our hopes on the back of things that cannot hold up. You dream the American dream. If I get the right job and I have enough money and I have the right house and the right wife, then I can live happily ever after. At least that used to be the television programs. The television programs have become a lot more cynical because they realize this isn't happening. And many people, many times we don't get what we want, and we think that if I can only get it, then I'll, I'll be okay. And then others of us get it and discover that it doesn't live up. Jim Carrey said that, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it is not the answer. The book of Ecclesiastes attests to the frustration of life in this world when it says meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labor as they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains the same. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and around it goes, ever turning to on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear enough of hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything to which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already. Long ago, it was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered 
by those who follow. I hope you're depressed. That is the point. That this world cannot give us fulfillment. This world cannot give us the things that we think it promises. It is utterly frustrating. But I've got good news. Because there's one who gives us hope. This world cannot give us. And that's our God who gives us hope. In his great mercy, God gives us a living hope. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you are a Christian today and you have been born again into a living hope, you have a different kind of a hope that cannot disappoint. A hope that is kept in heaven for you, a hope that is more valuable than a billion dollars, a hope that cannot be destroyed. You've been born into a hope that can't disappoint. Because according to Romans 5, God has poured out his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. Whether we know it or not, the thing that we hope for, the thing that we hope for is love. And God gives us an infinite love in himself. But you need to be born again. If you're here today and you have not been born again, I would beg you to confess your sin before God and tell him that you need him, that you've been running after things that can't fulfill. But he is here to rescue you and to give you life in his son. You've been born into a living hope. And according to verse 4, into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed on the last day. You see, all earthly inheritance will one day perish, but the one in heaven for you will never spoil it will never be taken away. In fact, Peter says you're being guarded. It's as if there's a garrison of soldiers surrounding you, angels surrounding you, guarding you. And the realization of this hope needs to change how you live your life. You remember the illustration of the two workers, one getting 10,000, one getting a million? Well, you're getting a lot more than a million. You've got something to look forward to that is beyond this world. And God is here with you, attesting to it. You can begin to even enjoy it now. The interesting thing about this inheritance is if, if somebody gives you, it leaves you in their will, and you're going to get an inheritance here on earth, you may or may not get it. You know, the stock market could change. Your land values change. Property deteriorates and, and depreciates too. But the inheritance that God gives us, he guarantees us. He didn't have to give us a guarantee. But he guarantees it by raising his son from the dead. So when we get weary, we wonder, oh man, we need to remember that Jesus raised his son 
from the dead. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us this makes all the difference in the world. It says that if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, the apostles were liars and our faith is vain and we can't believe the Bible. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, then all our sin is really still with us. If Jesus is not risen, then those who died in Christ have been, have perished. If our hope is only realized in this life, we of all people are to be pitied. But we know that Christ indeed has been raised because God has raised him from the dead. And that's where the Christian hope lies. And the realization of this not only changes our future, but it changes our present. It changes how we live now. It frees us up to not worry about the things of this world, which we, some of us, love to worry. But we can, we can take a chill pill. Have you ever seen a movie with someone, and you've seen the movie already, and they haven't seen it, and it's kind of a mystery, and you don't know what's going to happen, it's a, and they're kind of jumping and twitching and wondering what's going to happen. You're just kind of, yeah, 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 because you've seen the movie. In a sense, the promise of hope and the scriptures give us a hope because we've seen the movie. God tells us what the ending is, or, is already. Life is up and down, and I love using the word, the vicissitudes of life. You don't know what's going to happen in this world. But you don't have to worry because God's, God's got your back. He's already told the story. He's, written, he's writing the story as we go along. He's already written it, and he's writing it. We're in the middle of it. Think about the story of Joseph and, and, and his brothers being sold into, into slavery. Think about the family dynamics. Think about those brothers and their animosity towards him and what happened to Joseph and the agony of Jacob wondering what happened. His son is dead, but he's not really. And then, and then Joseph is, is, is in Potiphar's house and things are well, going well. God's blessing him and he's up. But the next thing you know, Potiphar's wife is chasing him and she's telling, him, telling her husband that, that he committed adultery and and then Joseph is thrown into prison, and the drama changes. The, the, the scene changes, and he's in prison, and, and he's feeling— but he gets, has an opportunity to interpret dreams of, of the, of the cupbearer, I guess, who drinks, and, and the baker, and he interprets that dream. He says, remember me. And he's hoping they'll remember him, but they forget him, and his life is down again, and he's in the dump, and meanwhile, Jacob has no idea that his son is still alive, and the brothers are agonizing. And what happens is that, is that the Pharaoh has a dream, and he interprets it, and what happens? He becomes second in command to Pharaoh. You see how, how life takes these ups and downs? See, we're reading the scriptures, and, and we're saying, wow, we know what's going to happen, so we're, we're not flinching. But we're, we're in this life. We're in this life. And, and, and we need the perspective of one who is back and knows the whole story. And that's God who is writing our story. And he tells, me, tells us there's going to be a happy ending. There's going to come a day when there's a new heaven and a new earth. And it's going, it's going to come down. And it's going to replace this life. And we're going to be part of that. He tells us that, he, that, that every tear is going to be wiped away. He tells us that he is with us even now. 
And so Paul is able to call the trials and the difficulties that we go through now, he calls them a brief momentary affliction. They don't feel like a brief momentary affliction. So who are we going to believe, our feelings or what the Word says? In verse 6 of our, of our reading, Peter says that we can even rejoice in the midst of them. Verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I love the fact that the Scriptures call this stuff a brief momentary for a little while. They feel like infinity when you're going through them. But do you remember when you were a little kid and, and, and you had to get that shot and how traumatic that was? That's kind of what life is. It's, God's got you. God's got you back on this. And Peter is telling us that it is possible, even in the midst of difficulty and suffering, to rejoice. And we know how to, we, we know how to cry and mourn when we're suffering, and we know how to rejoice when the circumstances are good, but Peter tells us that we can even rejoice in the midst of our, of, of our pain and our difficulty because we know that God is working everything together for good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And another reason that we can rejoice is because it serves a purpose. Verse 7 says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though perishes by tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All of our difficulties, all of our trials are making us more like Jesus. They're chipping off the edges, the things that annoy us, the things that bother us about other people are actually working to our good, even though they don't feel like it at the time. You remember the story of Job and his sufferings? Again, we're reading it. He's, he was one of God's favorite. God allowed Satan to torment and test him. But he came out as gold because God was perfecting him. He was cutting off things that didn't need to be there. And that's what God is doing in every one of our lives. And he's, he's not in a rush to do it either. Sometimes I, I, you know, I, I want to get there a little faster. But he, is, he has his own timetable. And although we're aware of the living hope, although we have been promised a better, more glorious tomorrow, and although we know intellectually all this is true, we tend to fall back, don't we? We tend to keep falling back into life on this planet and getting our hope from things here. And his tendency in the Old Testament was was challenged by the prophets in the Old, Old Testament, would challenge Israel because Israel would continually fall back on their old ways. But for us today, we have Jesus who continually reminds us that he is the reality. He is what we need. The woman at the well, thirsting for fulfillment, for hope. She had five husbands, and the man she was living with was not her husband. She had placed all her hope there. And Jesus tells her, 
He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We need what Jesus provides. He tells Martha, who had placed all her hope that Jesus would be there, she said, if you had only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus said, your, your brother will live again. And, you know, Martha's a good theologian. She says, yeah, I know I'm going to see him in the resurrection. And Jesus has to remind her that I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live forever, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And he asked Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus calls us to come to him, all who are weary and burdened, and he will give us rest. And we are all weary and worn because we're, we're, we're running this life and we're, we're, we're trying to get promotions and we're trying to make money and we're, we're, we're concerned about our security. Have I saved up? Uh, place your hope in him. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. That's what we need for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But how do we make this a reality? So in closing, I want to give us some things that we can kind of hold on to because we're going to forget all of this by the time we get to the parking lot. It's so easy to forget. I preach a sermon. I preach... Friday night at a men's retreat. The next thing I know, I'm in total conflict with my wife over silly stuff because we so easily forget. And so we need constant reminders. One thing I would recommend is that you ask God to fill you with his spirit so that you can see reality. You can see the reality of the living hope uh, that he gives us. We need to be in constant prayer. Because we have an enemy in the world that drags us down. The flesh drags us down. And the devil tells us nonsense that drags us down. And so we need to be in constant prayer. Lord, open up my eyes that I can see this. Secondly, I would recommend you study First Peter. It's all about hope. First Peter 1.13 argues that we should obey, not because life is easy, but because we have a living hope. 1 Peter 2.11 tells us that we live like aliens because we know that this is not the final destination. 1 Peter 2.13 teaches us to submit to the authorities over us and to work respectfully in the workplace, not because we have nice bosses, but because we have a living hope to look forward to. 1 Peter 2.23 tells us to put up with insults, of others because people are no longer the source of our hope. First Peter 3 teaches that the only way to a great marriage is if your spouse is not the source of your hope. That's a hard one. First Peter 3.8 teaches that our living hope enables us to endure even suffering. Read first. Peter, great, great book. 
Thirdly, find like-minded believers who also want to experience God's living hope. The only way you're going to grow is with other Christians. You, don't, you, you can't live the Christian life alone. Find a prayer partner. Find someone who shares your, 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 your faith in Jesus and go to them. And, and, and for, for, for people like me who, who, who t- t- tend to be extremely introverted and like one-on-one. I, I, have, I have Skype calls with friends that I connect with once a month, and we just, get, we just talk about Jesus. I have several around the country. I just, I need that refreshment because we so easily uh, forget this. Fourthly, be thankful. Be thankful in all things. We tend to take life for granted. We assume life. We are very much like teenagers who assume that their parents are going to take care of them and who think that they have a right to rebel against it. We are just like that with God. And so we just kind of, well, you know, why isn't God showing up? We need to be thankful in all, just thankful. Lord, thank you for waking me up. Thank you that I have breath. You, 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 you don't realize what God has given to you until it's missing. And, and, you have, and you have trouble breathing, or you have trouble walking, and you, you, you kind of take your legs and your limbs for granted until, they're, until you don't have them. So be thankful in all things. And lastly, remember that all biblical hope is a certainty because our living hope is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is alive even now. Where is your hope? Where are you building your hope? Not to over, overdo Tim Keller quotes, but he also has a, another illustration in which he talks about a lumberjack getting ready to down a forest of, of, of trees. And uh, there's a little bird who's trying to make a nest in one of the trees, and the lumberjack knows they're going to knock down all these trees, and so he goes and takes the back of his axe and whacks it against the tree until the bird flies away and rise, flies to another tree, but they know the whole forest is gone. So they won't go to the other, goes to the other tree, and he whacks it, and he whacks it, and the bird keeps doing this until finally the bird finds a high rock to build his nest. Where are you building your hope? Where have you placed your hope? The hymn writer writes, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. No merit of my own I claim, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father and our God, we thank you that you have given us a living hope in Christ Jesus. We thank you that it is not in the things of this world which perish, which perishes even before us, our very eyes. I thank you that we have a solid rock in Christ Jesus. And I pray, Lord Jesus, if there's any here who don't know you, that they would even now surrender their lives to you and even speaking to one of the elders after service. And I pray for my brothers and sisters because we're all struggling in this life. The world of flesh and the devil is difficult and it can be hard. I pray that you would fill us with the hope that can only be found in Christ. And I pray that we would be such a community that people would actually come up to us and wonder about the hope that they see in us. 
It's all in Jesus, our only hope, in whose name I pray. Amen.